And so I think everybody sees a different movie. I mean, there's as, there's as many movies as there are people to watch them and, and, and experience. Wilford Brimley, nicest looking guy on the planet. <laughs> actually looked like Reed Richards. You had the you had the white. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that a lot, actually, from my comic book friends. Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Jason. And I'm Max. And today we're going to be covering John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982, starring Kurt Russell and Wilford Brimley. They're the main, they're the, they're the main actors that you're going to know uh, without having to look it up. But it's full of character actors that everybody will recognize. Including Murdoch. Including Murdoch? Murdoch. From, yeah, from the 18. He's in it? Yeah. It looked like him. I don't think Am he's I in it. I think you're wrong. I think Lord Movies will strike you down after this episode, but... Um, God, it looked like him. Are you thinking of Windows or Fuchs? So. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not the actor that you think it is. Really? Really. I'm leaving all, all right. this in, by the way. <laughs> well, well, then let's move on because I'm, uh, I'll be embarrassed. Sidebar. Lord Movies has to correct Jason here. The actor he was thinking of was Dwight M. Schultz. He played Murdoch in the 80s television series The A-Team, and he is not, contrary to Jason's belief, in the movie The Thing. So into the sidebar. This is a, a remake of a 1951 film uh, called The Thing from an, Another World, which itself was based on a 1938 novel called Who Goes There, which, dear listeners, I read in preparation for this, for this podcast. The 1951 film, we're going to talk about this briefly, because it, the film probably deserves its own episode, as Jason was telling me earlier today, was a huge success in 51. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was, the most, it was the highest grossing science fiction film of 1950. And since then, since 51, it's become considered a cult classic. It was directed by, billed by Richard Nyby, right? Christian Nyby. Christian Nyby, produced by Howard Hawks. So there's a lot of debate about how much of a hand Hawks had in the direction. Like James Arness tries to give Nyby quite a lot of credit for the film, but other people have said that Hawks was all over the production. Uh, do you know anything about that? Uh, I, I, I do. And uh, and I actually, I've come to a conclusion about that. I guess listeners should know that I'm a, a massive fan fan of Howard Hawks as as a director. He might be my favorite director. Reading about the production, which I read about in a biography, and you know, there's lots of different ideas from or different statements from people over the years as to who did what. But it certainly seems that it was a it was a situation very similar to Poltergeist. I don't know if you if you know about that, but I know uh, nothing. Toby Hooper uh, directed Poltergeist, but Steven Spielberg was on set at all times. Okay. And in fact the rumor is is that he the only reason Spielberg didn't direct Poltergeist is because he wasn't permitted to to direct two movies in the same year. Huh. Um, yeah, it was kind of a weird, I couldn't imagine that happening now. There is a rumor that um, it was a gift to Christian Nyby because Christian Nyby was the editor of many of Howard Hawks' films, and this was a way to give him his his in to becoming a director in his own right. Okay. And so um, it, it seems the consensus that I can build together is that Christian Nyby was the director of record, blocked all the scenes, but Hawks had no problem stepping in to give ideas, which he would, which was his directorial style. Like if he felt that a scene wasn't working, he would get everybody together and and kind of get ideas from everybody about how to make the scene work better. Um, but also. 
uh, Hawks uh, wrote rewrote a lot of the dialogue. Okay. Which he which he did a lot. Hawks was the kind of guy he was never afraid to take a script and change it and twist it as much as he wanted to get the good scenes that he wanted to uh, to have. Mm-hmm. He had a very as a producer he had he was always on set. That's pretty well documented. And he had a very very hands on approach. And Nivey looked up to him. Yeah. I, I did find a quote from Christian Nivey that uh, I believe it was in it, it was about eighty two when the new film was being made that they had like a, a cast reunion and right. Nivey said you know that look you know you you don't take the brush out of Rembrandt's hand and and he said that you know Howard Hawks was the guy I wanted to be he's the guy I wanted to emulate anything that he said I wasn't going to argue with him so I, I uh, I've come to the conclusion that one could say that it was a almost a co-directed gotcha maybe collaborative yeah if, if they work so closely together I mean if you watch people edit films a director works really closely with their editor and so they're mm-hmm. even that process is is pretty collaborative in the structuring of a movie Absolutely. so so I, I i would imagine that collaborative is maybe the best way to describe it so so this was a tremendously popular movie that only grew in the appreciation that people had for it like i said i don't want to talk about it too much but i think one of the reasons why it might have been so powerful one of the reasons why it might have been so powerful is the strength of its images and the pace that the film has uh, i think that it must have really stood out to audiences i mean audiences must have been absolutely horrified by some of the scenes in it that now look to, to today to modernize look fairly tame i mean this almost to me it almost reads like an adventure uh science fiction movie and less of a horror movie yeah. but at the time uh, one of the i read a reviewer from i think it was the new yorker um who said that this is a good film and it's a fun film but don't take kids who aren't sufficiently prepared for it because it's got some harrowing scenes in it and anyway uh it's i would recommend seeing this that film as well uh, that's not the film we're going to talk about but because this film was so popular but kind of dated for 1980s audiences film companies were looking for a way to remake it you were doing some reading about this today yeah actually uh, uh in, in in reading about because i i gotta say uh all these years i kind of uh just kind of assumed that it was a film that was it was john carpenter's idea uh, i do know that john carpenter uh, shares my love of howard hawks films yeah and uh so so he was he was very he was very game to do this film i always kind of assumed it was his idea but it was not it was the plan or the idea of the the Terman foster company okay who had been developing it throughout the 70s. And now their goal was to create, and you'll be able to talk more about this, uh, was to create a story that was a little bit closer to the original short story. Yeah. Uh, and that was the goal. There were there were numerous directors that were floated around through the 70s. There were num- numerous scripts that they went through before finally settling on John Carpenter, who probably got the job because of um, Halloween, which was his breakthrough film. That's when they kind of turned to him. And he did not like the script that they had. Okay. The, the final screenplay that they went w- with was written by Bill Lancaster. Uh, and, and I think the two of them worked very closely to uh, basically craft what we ended up getting. So, quick note of trivia. In the film Halloween, the characters are watching a horror movie. And do you yeah. know what horror movie they're watching? They're watching Howard Hawks The Thing. This was long before Carpenter was going to be directing The Thing. Right. The 1951 film does not follow the book at all. Um, it has a team of scientists the, the 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 story has a team of scientists but hawk's film is very much a military story where it, a, 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 that interfaces with a group of scientists who are working at a research station in the north pole 
The book, of course, takes place in Antarctica, the South Pole, and so does so does the new movie, the Carpenter film. But it does have some of the same beats. There are some moments that happen in the book, I mean, in the story, because it's like I said, it's not a book. The fight with the dogs uh, happens in Hawk's film, where the thing fights the dog, fights a bunch of huskies. There's a blood test that doesn't happen in Hawk's film. I'm trying to think here. What happens in Hawk's film that is the same? The, in the novel, there's a scene of electrocution. We get a little of that in, in the, in the, there's there's a, some electrocution in the book as well, but everything's changed. Hardly any of the same characters are in the in the Hawks film. So, what was the what was the production company? Sorry, uh, for um, the new one for the for the Carpenter film. Yep. Uh, that that was um, well. The producers were uh, David Foster, Lawrence Terman, and it was the Terman Foster Company. Well, they, along with Carpenter, certainly decided to go back to the story, and all of the characters from the story are in the in the Carpenter film. Now, okay. some of them have been combined I think Childs uh, his character in the film played by Keith David there's a guy you'll recognize right away Keith David uh, powerful voice was the uh, father in there's something about Mary who comes in on poor Ben Stiller right uh, right when he's gotten his thing stuck in a zipper Uh, um, but uh, I think he might be a composite because there's like there's a huge research team in the novel uh, yeah I think John W. Campbell John W. Campbell's novel I mean it's a big research effort and it's almost all scientists in fact it is all scientists Anyway, the Carpenter story goes right back to the novel and, and, and does follow it a lot more closely than the Hawks film ever dreamt of doing, which isn't a knock on the Hawks film. They were doing something different, but this hues much closer to the, the story, the, the Campbell story, than, than Hawks' film. Anything else about the production you wanted to, wanted to say? Uh, no, I, I, I guess I would add that uh, uh, just something that, that listeners might be interested in, certainly I'm interested in saying, is that uh, that's one of the things Howard Hawks did, is that he would take somebody else's story. Oh, this is a great story. You know what it needs? It needs a, 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 a group of men who like to kind of rib each other all the time and a a, a woman who, who who's with this group and she's sexy and she's but she's also one of the guys and she yeah. can she can drink as well as them and she can swear as well as them. Right, or better. And uh, pretty much Hawks, those were the kind of characters he liked. So it's it's very, not, it's not surprising at all that he t- saw this story and decided to put his Hawksian character into the situation. Yeah, yeah, there's uh, th- yeah, it is interesting because in the Campbell story there's no there's not a woman at all, but in in Hawks's film and this is a mark for it I think, especially for 1951, he puts in one main female protagonist character who's very smart and strong and sassy. But there's also another f- woman there who I think is a is a doctor or a nurse or something who's on yeah. staff there. So he adds a couple of uh, female characters that weren't in the book. Now there are, you know, action-oriented tough characters in in the Campbell story, but they don't really get a chance to rib each other quite as much because they get plunged into what is a serious horror story, science fiction yeah. horror story. And that's what can't that's what that's what Carpenter wanted to tell. He wanted to tell not an adventure yarn with horror and, and science fiction elements. He wanted to tell a science fiction horror story like what Campbell tells. It's very interesting that um, um, this film that we're going to review was rather low budget, I think, for of the time. I want to stop the audience right now. If you guys haven't seen this film, when we do podcasts, Jason and I discuss these films pretty in depth, so there's going to be a lot of spoilers, and I don't want to spoil this movie. The experience of watching this movie. We can spoil Superman 4, and you'll still get a great <laughs> kick out of it, but but I, if you haven't seen John Carpenter's 1982 film The Thing, pause the podcast. It will be here on the internet forever. Go watch it, and then come back. Uh, that, that's, that's what I 
want to say because I think this film is a joy enough and it has enough mystery and uniqueness that you, if you haven't seen it, maybe you haven't really seen this film before. You could, we could, we could do this film about a movie like Predator or something like that, right? And people wouldn't have to pause it because they've seen the skeleton of Predator before, right? So, so yeah, that's, that's, that's the caveat I want to say. And now you've been warned, audience. Uh, well, yeah, you know, and, and kind of, you know, feedback to that. Uh, and uh, I, I think that you might be a little bit jealous of the experience that I had watching this movie this time uh, because uh, I, you know, cause, you know there's always that part where we talk about you know our our history of watching the film. Yeah, yeah. This is this was my second time watching this movie. Oh, really? Really? Wow. Uh, I had watched it almost exactly 20 years ago. Oh, wow! Uh, it, it was recommended to me by a coworker. I was working at a library at the time. Okay. And and it was recommended to me. I was told you know, that I should watch both films. And yeah, so I did. Good. And I watched uh, this movie, and I, I absolutely loved it. Like I thought it, I thought it was everything that you said it was because you had talked about it. Yep, yep. And 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 it was as good. Everything that anyone had said. Um, in the years since, I've not really run into it. Okay. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I knew it was good enough that if it was ever on Netflix streaming or Amazon's Prime, I, I would I would have dropped everything and watched it. Yep. But this is a movie that really has not been. I've never stumbled across it. Okay. Yeah. On, on any of the platforms that I use and this kind of thing, I, I I was kind of surprised when I watched it this time that I, I realized that I had not really seen it since I watched it the first time. So twenty years. Is a long time. That's plenty of time to have some surprises again. That's where I say that you're going to be jealous because yeah. I actually I remembered very little. Okay. I remember the I remember the ending, which I'm going to do now, or we won't go into now. I really was able to watch the movie with very fresh. I mean, all these movies that we're watching, we try to watch with fresh eyes and we try to yeah. you know uh, notice things maybe we hadn't noticed. I really got to be like a babe in the woods with this movie. Excellent. Which what which was really really incredible, and I'll, I'll describe some of that experience as we go along. Because really, uh, uh, that has a lot to do well, uh, with my response then and what is going to be my verdict now. Well, it's interesting too because um, one of the things that you notice uh, and that I, I really say that one of the one of the joys of the film and also the horrors of the film is watching these characters, specifically Blair, Fuchs, and McCready. Those are our core. Well, right. Blair and McCready are kind of our focal points for a lot of the film. They're the guys who are figuring things out and watching them figure things out is, is uh, one of the joys of the film. Yes. And so it's great when you haven't seen the film to be figuring this out with him. Now, it's interesting because this film does something that I think is, I think it's interesting. The audience is always a little bit ahead. Well, for a while, the audience is a little bit ahead of the heroes. From the get-go, the scene opens and you've got a helicopter chasing a dog over across the, across the Arctic snow cap, the Antarctic glacial plains, I guess. And they're shooting at it. As an audience, we've, we've paid our tickets or we've rented it or whatever we've done. We know we're seeing a, a, a space, a sci-fi horror film. So we know right away that trouble is afoot. We know that before the characters at the Arctic research station. So we know what's up. And I think that that's kind of a neat tension because we're seeing these guys, uh, they hear the helicopter and they hear the, they see the dog and they just come out curious because they don't know what's going on. And we're already getting tense for them as the viewer, I think. Did you did yeah. you sense that? I mean, did you feel oh, that a little bit? Oh, no, absolutely. And, and actually, um, this was one of the first moments where I realized that I was having a hard time reacclimating to uh, the storyline mm -hmm. because actually I, it took me a couple minutes to, to, figure out what was going on but but no you're absolutely right i mean obviously uh you have these guys in a helicopter and they're 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 shooting at this at this dog they're really bad shots by the way well um, shooting from a helicopter 
but, but it's true. But the dog's running on snow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah. Uh, I, I actually uh, felt that uh, he was a goner several times. Yeah. Um, and then and then the dog gets to to who are going to be our heroes, the, the, yeah. the group of guys. I guess they're the Norwegians is what we end up. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the Norwegians and they get out and and I think the first moment where we realize something's really wrong mm-hmm. is when they try to shoot the dog yeah even even when the dog is is surrounded by human beings yeah and of course I, they end up sh- shooting a human being the dog is jumping up on uh, Clark right the dog runs up to somebody in the group and we don't understand the significance of this at the time but it's trying to lick him did you see that yeah it's trying to lick him and that's that's gonna come up later and the second time you watch it you'll be like oh don't let him do it you know right right um, but it's trying to lick him and the the norwegians are yelling but of course there's a language barrier and they the new the norwegians just say fuck it and they start shooting at the dog even though it's up on somebody's chest right right they end up shooting a guy i can't remember that i can't remember that character's name but not they don't kill him they just shoot him in the leg um right. not intentionally um <laughs> going back to your bad shots yeah yeah um, <laughs> while somebody's shooting another guy is getting out a grenade <laughs> Yeah. And this yeah. is when this is when everybody kind of knows shit's gone crazy because the guy tries to throw the grenade and it slips out of his hand because he's got a big mitten on. The Norwegian with the gun runs off and the other guy's frantically trying to find the grenade and then he gets killed and it's just like immediately... What I like about that scene is just the reaction of all the actors. But you're the one who's seeing this with fresh eyes. What are you thinking as this is all going uh, on? Well, you know, it, it, it took me a few minutes uh, to get reacclimated to what was going on. I mean, and, and that's one of the weird things is, you know, I'd seen this scene before. It's an incredibly well done. Uh, the, the whole sequence is very well done. But it took me several minutes to figure out again, you know, for the second time, mm-hmm. what really was going on in terms of who the dog actually was. Yeah. yeah. Therefore, I almost as a viewer, uh, I was able to... To kind of be with the heroes, yeah, yeah, and just be, and and I mean, I figured it out before they did because I'd seen the movie before, yeah. But 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 I was briefly kind of mystified, and then I was kind of reminded, oh, really? What this first scene is is it's it's kind of the last scene of a movie that no one's ever seen, yeah. Because these Norwegians, they've already been through a movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they've already been through an entire adventure. They've had all of their dynamics and paranoia with each other and so forth, and we just see the tail end of it, and. For I think for a new viewer, for someone seeing it for the first time, or if they're old and forgetful like me for the second time, but it's like <laughs> the first, um, that, that that it's almost we almost stand there as mystified as our heroes are. Oh, like yeah. this is really bizarre. People don't usually act this way. This is a bit overkill. Yeah. Kill a dog. It, it, it's I mean it's a great scene and it kind of it sets everything up perfectly. But to the new viewer, it, uh, you get to kind of share in the. Uh, uh, in the confusion of of our heroes, who, as you said, are just kind of standing there, just watching what's happening, well, and the, then one of them, and then one of them gets shot. Well, that's interesting because like the helicopter blows up, and they're like, oh, everybody kind of like freaks out, but it's still not real to them that they should be finding cover until one of them gets shot, and then they all scramble, and that this Norwegian guy just walks through them. He's not interested in them at all. He's got a very specific mission. As if you were watching it in this in the era that we're in, where there's a lot of this like mass shooter violence, it was kind of it. Can grab those feelings i think in a viewer too because like yeah. those guys just they scatter and they're they're all scared the norwegian is about to get a is about to pop the dog it looks like but he himself is killed by captain gary the the yeah. kind of the boss of the arctic station what is the name of this station let's see sidebar 
The station is referred to as U.S. Outpost 31. The name doesn't really pop up in the movie, but it is mentioned in a video game and in two comic book adaptations of this story. It has a crew of 12, so into the sidebar. Yeah, well then, um, well, I mean, it, it's it's actually very interesting because it actually took me several scenes mm-hmm. to catch up to catch up to my old experience because you know they're, they're trying to figure out just what the hell happened with the with the Norwegians. Now, uh, then do they? Well, they stitch up the dog. They stitch up the guy who got shot. They, they, they stitch him up, and then and then they kind of bed down for the night. They do. Right? Yeah, they're, they're gonna go and see. I don't know if they leave that day or if they leave the next day, but that's what I'm trying to remember yeah. because I because that's an important piece when they actually go to find out what happened at the, at the Norwegian station. Yeah, because they, they think they think a big risk that they all worry about up there is that somebody's going to go stir crazy right. and uh, recreate the last act of The Shining. <laughs> Right. You know, yeah, um, yeah. and they're all a little perplexed because it's kind of early in the season, and they don't really expect anything like this to happen right now. I think I think they leave because doesn't he say? Um, um, Brady says that that we've got to go now before the storm hits. Or well, he doesn't want to go right away. He doesn't want to go right away because the. Copper, Dr. Copper, the doctor right. wants to go say, well, there might be more people hurt at the Norwegian camp. Um, okay. And uh, Gary says, well, we got this window. The, the Captain Gary, the, the the boss. So we got a window yeah. we can go. McCready is a helicopter pilot. Um, we first see him. He's the Kurt Russell character. We first see him. Is he playing chess or is that later? He's playing chess with the computer. I think that's the first time that we see him and he loses and then yes. he, uh, yeah, he pours his so, scotch. That's right. He pours his scotch down the CPU of the of the program. Quick trivia note. Do you know who the voice is of the computer? No. Adrian Barbeau. Really? It is, yep. Uh, wow. Anyway, Adrian Barbeau is a kind of, uh, what would we describe her as? She's a, she would be a vixen, I suppose, of the 70s and early 80s, right? I would say so, yes. Yeah. And she was a favorite actress of John Carpenter. She's in a lot of his films. Trivia note, look her up, but watch who's around. <laughs> When you're looking up images of Adrian Barbeau. And so, but anyway, McCready is kind of hesitant to go. The weather can change at any time, but uh, Copper is really insistent that we might save some lives at the Norwegian station. Uh, who McCready keeps calling Swedes for most of the, well, not Swedes, McCready. Yeah, yeah. Norwegians, which is which is about as jokey as the film gets. Yeah, that's true. You that's know? true. But um, anyway, they go to the station and what they find is a lot of what Copper expected, that there was a, there was a, big to do but i think this scene is where mccready starts having his suspicions that something something is off because when you walk around the norwegian camp it's not like what you would expect a, a madman with a gun or two madmen with guns to do there are holes in the wall everything's burned out there's charred remains of people first they uh they find a guy at a radio station or the radio equipment area and he's killed himself he slit his own throat or no, he slit his wrists and his blood is frozen and it's really, it's really, really creepy. We get a window into McCready, Kurt Russell's character. And I, I think I want to come back to again and again in this. The doctor is horrified by this sight of the guy who's frozen and has killed himself, right? He says something to McCready, but McCready has no bedside manner. He's just bothered by all this, but he's not emotional during these mm-hmm. during these moments. Um, and so they're seeing all of this, this craziness, this battle zone, right? It's what it looks like. It looks like a battle has taken place. And that's when they find the charred remains of something. I find that these effects 
by Rick uh, Rob Bottin, who was a classic special effects guy of the 80s, to be really effective. What they find is a corpse. They find some normal burned corpses, but then they find something that looks like a sculpture almost. It's like the, a head that's coming apart and splitting. Um, it's really grotesque and affecting, I think, even to modernize. No, I agree. It, uh, it, and actually, throughout this film, everything, all, all of the visuals, and because there's a lot of models, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, special effects work, I think it all holds up very well. Right, right beginning with this scene, uh, the visuals are very frightening, actually and and uh disturbing yeah and uh um and it yeah. only gets worse from there yes it does yes it does so they take the remains back yeah um and and all this while the dog is walking around free in right. the the hero's camp and so the dog we know there's something up with the dog and one of the most effective things that happens in this film is the way john carpenter uses this really smart looking dog i don't know how they train the dog to do this it does look like a suspicious dog when we see it most of the time, right? Well, and I but think it's by itself. Of, yeah, it's by itself. And actually, I, I think that it's, what do they say? That, you know, the camera tells you what to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And there's the scene when the dog, it, it's in the evening and everyone's everyone's getting ready to bed down for the night. Yep. And we just see the dog walking down the hallway. And then we we see it enter, I think, uh, into one of the bunk rooms. Yep. And, then, and then there's a... a, there's a, a shadow, a, a silhouette of a person. Yeah, that, that's in the room. And then... And then we have a, a dissolve from that scene. And to the viewer, it's, well, that was a pointless scene. Or was it? Or was it? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and um, we're going to get it. In, we're going to get into who that was later on, I think. I don't know how much later, maybe sooner than I think. But um, because one of the mysteries on the Internet, if you if you watch this movie, you may be impelled to go on the Internet and do some searching. This film has produced a host of theories about it. There are a lot of strong opinions and a lot of debate about this film. And so anyway, yeah. hold that in your mind. They come back, uh, McCready and Copper and uh, the corpses. Well, they, they perform the autopsies, but I think that they, they just find regular human organs, don't they? Yeah, yeah. They, but it's strange. And, and, it, does, it, does Blair, it does confuse Blair because he's pulling things out of this corpse, liver. It's all human, but he, it doesn't look human. It doesn't look human. Blair, in the, in the novel or novella, is a biologist. I mean, he's the team's biologist. And uh, nothing is screaming. Other than the shape, nothing is screaming, this thing's going to kill you. You know, the, the, the um, thus far the film has given us reason to wonder just what the hell is going on with the dog. Yeah. But then uh, Clark takes the dog to the kennel with the yeah. other with the other oh, dog. That's right. The they're playing poker and the dog bumps into the guy who got shot and there's a there's a little jump scare for that guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and he says, Clark. Put this goddamn dog away, is what he says. And he puts the dog in the kennel. And the dog from the Norwegian camp gets put in the kennel. And this is a very eerie scene when it walks into the camp and it, like, very purposefully moves to the center and lays down. It's not behaving like any of the other dogs, which is interesting because it is a real dog in the room uh, with the other dog. So I just want to go back to, like, how well-trained this performing animal was. But, you know, so it's acting so much like not one of these dogs. And then when Clark leaves, it starts to tremble and change and uh, it starts attacking the other dogs in a pretty horrifying scene very much so it start, it sprouts out these weird appendages its head splits open and the skull falls out and it's it sprays some gunk on one of the dogs that's actually a dog that's ripping links out of the chain link fence that keeps it in its place which is a that's a panic dog somebody hears this uh well clark hears it clark comes running back and he sees in shadow a little bit about what's going on and then then that brings in the crew right 
right. to fight it. Somebody get a flamethrower. It's Childs who needs to go get the flamethrower, played by Keith David. Kurt Russell shoots it a few times with a shotgun. Nothing happens. And oh, that's right, right. Um, so they come in and they see the dogs all wrapped up in thing appendages, right? Yep. And then it changes form into something really grotesque that's not dog, it's not human, it's just this giant thing. These arms emerge from it. It's a really horrif- horrifying scene. And they basically kill it. They get it with the flamethrower, right? Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, they, yeah, they, they incinerate it or they kill it, and and I, and I think that this is the first moment that all of them and we, the viewer, know what we're actually dealing with. I, I have to say that actually, it was not until they put the dog in the kennel that my memory even came back into, in, into okay. place, and I actually was, oh right, oh that's right, right. you know, I, I, uh, I, I actually, I, I got to tell you, it, it was really, really cool. It's kind of embarrassing, really, to, to have <laughs> forgotten that badly, but, but to be able to to kind of go through these scenes again you know be surprised all over again was really really quite a treat but but it, but it's really it, it's a it's it, the beginning of that scene is very difficult to watch yeah because i think by that point everyone kind of knows that something's wrong yeah. it, for the reasons that you described and we see the dogs start to panic and it, it, it's not it's i mean for anyone that loves dogs it's not yeah. really a pleasant scene to watch well it's interesting because on top of the grotesqueness that's going on when the dog splits apart, the, the imitation dog splits apart and does all the things, the creature, the alien creature, we'll, we'll learn it's an alien creature, itself is making this really strange and unpleasant sound that, that puts the viewer on edge, right? And uh, I can't even do an impression of it. It's so otherworldly. And so that, I mean, the soundscape of the film goes a long way towards heightening the, the terror. I mean, the, the thing that I find interesting about the use of this dog, but cute dogs, smart dogs, are often often the heroes in movies, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're liked. And so I wonder if in 82, some people were like, oh, I wonder if this dog's going to be a super smart. You know, I wonder what people were thinking about that dog. Of course, I've seen the movie. I watched the movie once or twice a year, you know, so I'm, I'm never having this mystery anymore. But <laughs> were you ever, as, as somebody who was trying to catch up with your memories in this film, did you ever wonder, about, did you know the dog was bad from the get-go? Do you think that, it's, that that's really obvious to the viewer? Uh, you know, I, I don't think that it's obvious. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm I mean, it's, um, I think when you go into the film, you know that there's there's some creature that's going to enter the film at some point. Yeah. But uh, I think that to the uh, the initial viewer watching it for their first time, they could very easily think that the dog is going to end up being their, you know, the, the companion of our heroes. Yeah. You know, the, kind of like old Yeller or something. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and that turns out not to be the case. The thing that really strikes me about everything that we've talked about so far and for the rest of the film, and I want to zero in on something that you said, about one of uh, Kurt Russell's lines about the Swedes and they're yeah. actually Nor- Norwegian, how you kind of mentioned that, that the movie doesn't really try to go for one-liners last. No. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about just earlier today when just kind of preparing for this was realizing that there's a lot of exposition dialogue in this movie and the movie does all of that very well. But really, this movie is not about dialogue. This is a true movie in the yeah. sense that it is about moving visual images that tell a story. Think about this for a second. This movie could be silent, yep. and and you would follow the story perfectly. That's true. No, that's actually very true. Um, I mean, I mean, you know, maybe with some title cards, you know, to, to figure out what Blair has discovered yep. about you know the age of of uh, of, of the, the alien ship. Uh, you know, the information that they get from the from the Norwegian site. Like, I mean, there's some information that needs to be provided, but this is a very visual movie. Absolutely no. Um, even without title cards, you would you'd be able 
to get the skeleton of what has happened. No, it's 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 very effective at that. Helpful though to all of this is the uh, Ennio. What's his name? Ennio Morricone. Ennio uh, Morricone. The Morricone uh, score is really effective. It sounds almost like a John Carpenter score, though yeah. there is all the Carpenter usually likes to have a score that is almost an underscore, right? It's just it's not powerful. It's not it's not powerfully in your face, but it kind of adds to the tension of of a film. Morricone imitates Carpenter perfectly, and then adds some nice touches with some discordant strings that he uses in some yeah. key scenes that add really to the unease that the audience feels that's the other thing about this movie that i really enjoy is how uneasy it makes me feel even having seen it as many times as i've seen it it is a tense viewing and that score that score is crucial i think to helping that along i i i would agree with that i mean uh in a horror movie or in a suspense film it's very important to have a score that enhances the emotional experience and this this score works wonderfully uh in that regard and and as we go on, you know, I can kind of share with you uh, a lot of the just kind of visceral reactions I had to a lot of the scenes. Absolutely. Uh, oh, this movie is, you know, you just said you've seen it a million times and you, and you still react in this very uh, uh, intense way to everything. You know, to watch it for the first time or for the yeah. second time, it, this movie is really dynamite when it comes to thrills. Oh, and, absolutely. So they kill the dog thing, imitation yeah. dog, and we get a great scene that could have played really dull, and that's Blair autopsy or his recounting mm-hmm. of the autopsy Blair figures out that this thing imitates life right. and and the great thing that he the, the the thing that our group one of the few times they get lucky is that they caught this thing in the act mid attempt to infect and transform into more dogs to infect more dogs to have more of these things these imitations mm-hmm. running around because it needs some time to do this and they caught it mid transformation and so Blair played brilliantly by Wilford Brimley he's not just the diabetes guy everybody he's he's actually a really good actor he's, he's saying you know look this looks like dog but it's not dog it's imitation and over here on the beast it's it's clearly the creature um he's like if we had more time we wouldn't have been able to tell this at all uh tell it tell it from a real dog at all and so Blair is starting to figure things out McCready who was hesitant back to go to the Swede camp earlier when there was plenty of good weather is like all right we got to go back when they were at the when they were at the Norwegian camp the first time they found a big block of ice and this time McCready's like we need to go find out what they found because they did they take tapes back with them the first time i can't remember i thought they did okay yeah um but that didn't really mean much to mccready they show a picture of them of the norwegian crew they they watch some video of the norwegian crew describing an arc around a hole in the around a a smooth spot in the ice they show them blowing something up in the ice and they show them they show a hole in the ice don't they show the hole in the ice uh yeah um the the, i think it's a vcr isn't it and but 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 the footage is is a bit hazy but it's basically a, a a pretty faithful recreation of the discovery of the ship in the original thing from 19. I've read that it actually is the original footage. Really? It is the I, the, the explosion. It looked original to me. I, and I just watched the the original thing today. Yeah. I think it's the original footage. So in in the original movie, they our heroes find this crash spaceship melted into the ice, and they kind of uh, try and figure out what kind of craft it is, and they they all form a uh, they they decide to form a pattern around the creature with their bodies, and it's just a perfect circle. Not a, not the creature, but the ship with their bodies, and they find that they've they've described a perfect circle, and so they realize that they're 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 around a flying saucer. Anyway, they show that scene or a, re, a really pretty good imitation of that scene. Listeners, did you see what I did there? And so after 
the dog incident, McCready is like, we got to go back. And McCready goes, is it Norris? Yeah. Nor Norris goes back. Norris gets on his coat and goes back with them. They go to where the, uh, they, they, they see on the Norwegian's map a place where they keep going. And they go to that place and there's a giant flying saucer in a crater. That's a pretty good scene. It's a matte painting. The effects are still pretty good, I think. It, it looks it looks great. It looks absolutely great. You would not know that this was a pretty low budget movie from that that visual. It, and it looks, to it's totally convincing. Our heroes see that this is not a normal ship and they find the block of ice and they're pretty sure that what they've got is this alien, right? And that's what Mac wanted to know. He wanted to see that. And then they fly back. And Blair sends the creature, the corpse that they found, to be put in cold storage. Blair is dealing with the dogs. He's taking blood from the dogs and he's talking to Clark. This is before Blair runs his simulations and Blair's like, uh, when did the dog get, what, what, what was the dog doing before you put him in here? And he's like, oh, just running around camp, Clark says to Blair. And yeah. that's when Blair says the dog was running around in the camp for two days. Yeah, uh, says Clark. And then Blair's like, how long were you alone with that dog? And Clark gets a little unnerved by this. He's like, I don't know, an hour? What are you looking at me like that for? And Blair says, oh, uh, it's probably nothing. Now, what are you looking at me like that for is such a great drawing from the story. Yeah. In the Who Goes There story, have you read the Who Goes There story? I have not. I've One not. of the keys in the story is the paranoia that starts to set in on this group. Yeah. They can't trust each other. They don't know who's who. They know that this thing can imitate people. They know it's going to be hard to tell between the imitation and the real thing. What are you looking at me like that for? Everybody feels like in the in the in the short story everybody feels like they are being looked at with naked suspicion and everybody everybody has this sensation of eyes being on them you know and it's <laughs> anyway it's a nice little moment that draws from the book this this movie by the way more so than the 51 version actually draws a lot of lines or skeletons of lines from the story and puts them in the dialogue well he and he and he ends up suspecting Clark pretty pretty heavily he, he does he suspects Clark Blair's getting worried McCready is the other person who seems to understand the danger they're in intuitively um yeah. i like mccready a lot but he's an interesting character the remains of the creature get in and then we get our first big attack i think on a human that we get to see yes. and that's when that's when they put the creature in cold storage it's winters the radio operator and bennings and is another the winters is like well they want to keep him in here for until we can figure out what to do with him i'm gonna go you come in bennings and bennings says i've got to get a few things and this is neat because they've got a blanket over the thing and winters and and bennings are talking and as winters is turning the blanket moves like something underneath it is moving and that's it's really effective uh, horror movie making a bit winters almost sees it winters sees something but then he's like yeah then he leaves while this is happening this is another way in which the film is very good at building and ratcheting up tension some shit is going down in something's about to go down in the storage unit mm -hmm. simultaneously fuchs another scientist has needs to talk to mccready and he says mccready come on talk to me buddy and he wants to talk to mccready alone and they're in the cab of a machine uh, of some tractor and Fuchs is doing that exposition you were talking about. He tells yep. McCready about the doc's journals. Um, I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself because after the dog scene, I think is when we see Blair running his calculations, right? His yeah, the uh, the computer modeling yep. uh, in which he recognizes the stakes that uh, um, that the creature could. Uh, what does it say? That Twenty seven thousand hours, about three years, is what it is. Yeah, yeah. That 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 basically the entire Earth could be infected. So he he realizes what the stakes are, and and actually I. I, I love the way that, uh, uh, that Wilfred Brimley plays that because we see the fear and despair in his eyes, but he doesn't really react. He, he just he just kind of reads it. And, well, he's looking at uh, his stopwatch. He's watching the model happen. By the way, 
I think there's a small error in the model. Uh -huh. so, so in the model, they've got like these three little blobs moving around. One of them is an infected creature and it goes and it grabs another creature and then it consumes it. Yeah. And then it's just this thing, right? And then a couple more cells pop in and it finds and they come into contact with the infected cell and it grabs that one and then it consumes that cell. Mm -hmm. The model is more of like uh, what, what, what we might call phagocytosis is which is when one cell eats another cell. Mm -hmm. What it should have been is like some tendril going out from the infected cell and infecting that one and then that one yeah. going and infecting another cell. Whatever. I just noticed it this time for the first time in many viewings that that's not quite how the model should work. Yeah. It just, in this one, it just looks like it's going around eating everything. You know, Wilfred Brimley's reaction is like, he's nervous because he asked the computer basically, what's the probability that somebody in the team is infected? And it's, and the computer says the probability that one or more members of the team is infected is like, what is it? 75%? 75%. Yeah. And so he's just like, well, well shit. Yeah. <laughs> then we go to Benning's in the storage locker and Fuchs telling McCready about what's going on. Blair's Blair's not talking. He's locked himself in his office and McCready just kind of wants to write it off. He's tired. And, uh, and what does Fuchs say? Fuchs, Fuchs convinces him. He reads from, he, he reads from Blair's journal. And he's like, these cells are not dead. They're still mm -hmm. alive. They're still active. And McCready is like, okay, we need to get everybody together. And that's when everything goes to shit for them, really, because Bennings gets attacked. Oh yeah. Because, um, right. Well, okay. Because they're going to do the blood test. Yeah. Well, that happens later. They're going to do that. When do they, oh, they have no, the, the initial idea of the blood test is to, is to use the, the, the blood that they have on site and then to take blood from people and then have it. Well, that, you know, that happens after Binning's attack, right? They kill Binning. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, Binning yeah. gets assaulted by the creature, but they don't, it doesn't have enough time to fully become Binning's and uh, they chase it down. And this is a horrifying scene when Binning's is, is mid transformation and he's, he does that weird vocalization and his eyes are black. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, Kurt Russell flash fries him with the flamethrower. Yeah. And, uh, and now everybody, now, now that now it's even more real for everybody. They go and get some more flamethrowers, and uh, this is this is kind of a sad scene because Kurt Russell's putting on another flamethrower, and Gary, the captain, comes running in. He's like, "What was that? What was that?" I've known Bennings for like 20 years. He's my friend. And Russell doesn't say anything like, I'm sorry, I'm just too bad. It's what he says is, got to burn the rest of him. <laughs> he just yeah. goes by him. And it's it's this weird, I, I don't know what it is about that character that is so intriguing, but I mean, he just doesn't, he seems very matter of fact. I think yeah. I think he would be a good, I think Howard Hawks would approve of this character of McCready, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. But they go out and they burn Bennings and uh, that's when he says, let's get the blood test going, Doc. Because the doc, copper's been thinking about a blood test, which they talked about earlier. Well, although first, I mean, actually, I, I think you were right about the sequence. But first, Blair has his uh, meltdown. Because that's when that's when they have to go stop Blair. Yeah, because he um, he's he's killed the dogs killed the and dogs. He's, he's dismantled the helicopter. Yeah. And then he's uh, he's destroying the radio. He's destroying the radio. He's beat Winter's ass. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 he, and he's got a gun and he won't allow anybody in. Yeah. Um, and, and this is this is a powerful scene, too, because, again, it functions as exposition, but like Wilford Brimley's like, no dog makes it a thousand miles to the coast. That thing didn't want to be a dog. <laughs> that thing wanted to be us. So I think we're to assume that he's trying to prevent the creature from ever getting out of there. Yes, he, he's trying to strand the crew there and to prevent word from getting out. And I don't know what else he was planning from that point, but he was definitely not going to let anybody leave the base. In the, in the novel, McCready's pretty convinced that Blair's intention is going to be 
to kill everybody on base, you know, because okay. you, you can't really figure out who's who's who. But our heroes overpower Blair. They jab him and they put him in isolation. And it's kind of a sad moment when they give uh, Blair the morphine and they're locking him away. And uh, McCready stays behind with Blair for a second mm-hmm. as they're getting ready to lock the door. And he's like, eh. Uh, he says something, uh, pretty rough day, huh? And uh, Blair says, ah, I don't know who to trust. Yeah. You know, And it's a really sad scene. It's, it's, it's harrowing. And McCready will echo that line later on in his in his record of the events. Well, as you say, it's the theme of the movie. And then he kind of, he leaves him uh, a drink vodka or something. Yeah. And he says, uh, he says something like, uh, well, aren't you? His only inkling of a bedside manner comes out here. And he's like, well, why don't you just trust in the Lord or something like that. He says that, you know. And that's when they go out and they talk about the blood test but before he leaves blair says watch clark and watch him closely yes yes um because clark was alone with the dog he thinks the longest and so then they go to do the blood test but the blood store but the blood stores have been destroyed yep and uh the only people that have access to the blood are uh the doctor yep and the captain the captain yep um, and and they but he has the key he yep. has to give it to the doctor so he becomes the the kind of prime suspect something like this also happened in the novel it it's it's they think it's one of the two of them uh the doctor says there's something that comes up where it's either gary or copper the doctor Mm -hmm. and this is how kurt russell ends up becoming the the boss basically um people sort of defer to him a lot already you know yes yes from i mean kind of from early on like he's uh he's got a reputation among the among the crew so um who destroyed the blood that is a good question and i think it goes back to who was infected first who do you think this is this is a debate everybody this is uh jason and i may come out on the same side here but on the internet this debate rages who got infected first because correct me if i'm wrong the whole point of this is that the, the that the blood stores um the lock was not broken yeah that's why they think that it had to be someone that had a key yeah but that's not necessarily so, the case i don't think because of the things that this creature can do i think with its body it can okay. change, it can change form when it needs to you know yeah um, and so maybe it could have become something else because we'll find out later on that it's neither copper or Gary. Right. Because I mean, I mean, perhaps the creature because it has these little thin uh, membrane-like tendrils. Yeah. And maybe it could have reached through the door and 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 destroyed them that way. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that's a possibility. But but that was something that occurred to me watching the scene. It was like, well, who did I it? Guess it had to have been one of them, right? Yeah. Um, because it wasn't broken into. Yeah, yeah. So I, it could have been any of the infected people. I think because of the creature. The copper's convinced that the test would have worked. Mm-hmm. Gary is, Gary very gamely, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Winters freaks out and tries to get a shotgun. The radio operator yeah, yeah, yeah. tries to get a shotgun to uh, protect himself from everybody. And uh, Gary chases him down and put aims a gun at him. And yeah. uh, that's when Winters puts the gun down. Kurt Russell talks Gary down. And Gary says, I know I'm not one of those things, but I don't think. He basically says, I know I'm not one of those things, but I can't convince you guys. So here, I'll, I'll defer command yeah. to somebody else. And that's how Kurt Russell's character, McCready, ends up in charge. They're, getting, they're starting to trust each other less and less. McCready has found some clothes that look ripped through. and he's he's trying to figure out how to what's going on how do the thing attacks people and we get a scene where he's kind of pontificating with a tape recorder 
recording basically yeah. captain log his captain's log and he's like uh describing what's happened and then he's he's also drunk i think he's drunk a lot and he's like nobody trusts anybody anymore and then he, he pauses his tape recorder after saying that rewinds it and he's going to tape over it and what he says is i think it rips through your clothes i think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over mm-hmm. so he tapes over yeah. that little modeling feeling sorry for himself moment which i think is also another neat character point about mccready it's not. It's not long after that that he gets he gets caught out, and they think it's him, right? Well, yeah, but um, they um, he points out that his shack where he lives has the lights on, and he didn't leave the light on, yep. and he convinces them to come in a ba- and uh, check it out with him. Oh, wait a minute! Before that, though, they go and talk to Blair, don't they? Because they're looking for they're looking for Fuchs, the the doctor guy. Fuchs disappears, and and, the, and and Blair is now. I think I think he's acting differently. Ah, uh, you know, I I'm, I'm much better now. Mm-hmm. So they go into the visit Blair. He's sitting in his cabin, sleeping quite pleasant now. There's a noose that's in there and you know, I'm fine now. I'm fine now. At that point, Blair is one of the things. Yeah. And you know? and, and, and they know it, uh, really. I yeah. mean, I think McCready thinks McCready that. does, yeah. Not everybody else picks up on that, I don't think. And so the cook and McCready and he's with Winters. The cook and McCready and Winters are all outside and that's when McCready says, Winters, go tell him what happened. AJ and I are going to go check out my that's it yeah yeah, yeah. my cabin and uh why and he's like because when i left yesterday i didn't leave the lights on and they go up and they're gone for a while because everybody's Mm -hmm. like where the hell are they and that's when the cook comes back they let him in and he's gotten uh, he's like oh my god i was we were at mccready's shack and i found this stuffed up uh his boiler or whatever it was you know and he pulls out mccready's long johns they're dirty and they've got holes all through them and it looks like mccready is one of them and the other cool thing is as they're saying this uh, as as he's as he's laying out what he thinks has happened. So 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 I cut him loose. There's a whiteout storm happening. I cut him loose, and uh, he's one of them. And as he's saying that, the doorknob behind him starts to turn. Yeah. And that's a great scene, and everybody freaks out. They're like, uh, "He's back here. How did he get back?" Child is like, "No man could get back here in this in these conditions." One of my favorite moments in the movie is uh, Winters is like, "Childs, but what if we're wrong?" Well, then we're wrong. Yeah. Yeah, he's not yeah. gonna let he's not gonna let McCready in. One of the things I I like about this film, and I I, I guess I'll pause in our discussion to say that is that this film is really full of uh, well not full, but it has some really tough hard people in the movie that are willing to make some fairly hard decisions. In the end, there's a big selfless act that is about to ha- that, that they engage in. We'll get to it in a bit, but. But but nobody, not even the cook, box at the the at what Russell what, what McCready suggests at the end. But anyway, McCready busts his way into the a different storeroom and he locks himself in and they they breaking the door down to get to him. And this is a child has got a fire axe and he's cutting through the door and he's talking about how he's going to kill McCready. And when they get in, McCready has uh, prepared himself pretty well. He's got some dynamite and a torch. And he's like, you stay away, guys, or I'll blow you up. I'll blow us all up, right? Yeah, yeah. And he means it. And one of the, I mean, this is just such a powerful scene. And I, I cannot go back to, I cannot keep stating how great the actors are in this movie. Well, yeah, because actually, I mean, this scene and and, and countless others in this movie, I found myself not breathing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These scenes have you absolutely on the edge of your seat because, you know, just not know. And, and even, even if you've seen it a million times, just uh, uh, the tension that is taking place between these characters is something that is 
I mean, you could just cut it with a knife. Absolutely. As this tension is happening, as they're trying to figure out what's going on with McCready, Norris, well, you keep seeing the scenes of Norris looking outside. Norris is another scientist on the team, but he keeps acting like he's in some kind of pain. Cut back to the Kurt Russell threatening everybody with the dynamite. He's got like a shaky hand on the flamethrower, but he's got like that dynamite ready to blow everybody up. And that's when Norris and AJ, the cook, try and attack Kurt Russell, but he shrugs them off. Norris falls over. Kurt Russell reminds them of their imminent demise with dynamite. And AJ, the cook is like, man, look, it was just something we had to try. You know, that's the look on his face. And, (laughs) And Russell's not vindictive about that, but then Norris is dying. It looks like, he looks like he's having a heart attack. So then they rush him to the, hospital or the hospital wing of the the uh facilities in one of the great set pieces of the film mm-hmm. uh copper is doing cpr and he's got the the for 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 uh to 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 shock him what'd you say sorry Claire. clear shot yeah, yeah. once kurt russell's like uh still you know cold and trying to warm up and they're all watching this because everybody likes norris yeah Second clear as copper is about to hit him with the paddles copper uh norris's chest opens up giant teeth are in his chest cavity poor copper's arms go right deep into the chest cavity and he gets his arms bitten off screams in agony like you do <laughs> Right, you do when you get your arms bit off, and then another horrific transformation from the from the special effects team by Rob Bottin, which looks great. And you know, but you know, another thing uh, in the last episode when we talked about the Omen, we talked a little bit about jump scares. Yeah, uh, in 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 film, this movie has plenty of them actually, and and they're genuine. They're not. uh, uh, The film they're they're not done by panning the camera. No, no, they they are. Um, in fact, in this case, it's an effects shot. Yeah. Because our attention is absolutely on the chest, and then suddenly the chest opens. And, and I yeah. I know when I first saw it, I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> you know. That, okay, but again, that's why you should be jealous. That's what I did last night when I watched it. I was like, "Whoa, I forgotten about that," you know. And because this, you don't see the seam in the guy's chest when it opens up. I mean, it's a great effect shot. Now, I'll bore the read the listeners a little bit. Rob Bottin had a there was a guy on set who had two prosthetic arms, and they attached arms filled with jello to his stumps. They said, "Hey, you want to be in the movie?" And he said, "Sure." And they they attached these jello arms with with uh, some kind of like almost candy-ish bones in them and vessels. And they thrust his arms into the, to the, to the contraption that was the jaws that would snap shut on them. And uh, Botine was like, this was kind of like a, like basically a, a clamp from a bulldozer truck, right? Or something like that. And it snapped in, it crushed the arms. And uh, they even put like a prosthetic face of copper on the guy. So it looked like the actor was in the scene, but it's really this, this, this guy who was on the set doing work. Um, oh, that's awesome. But Botine was like, you know, look, Looking back, it was actually a really dangerous stunt because if the part of the guy's real arms had gone too deep, he could have been badly injured. You know, his, yeah. his amputation might have gone up a little bit. <laughs> he was like, I probably wouldn't do that today. Anyway, it's a great practical effect shot as uh, poor Norris, or the guy, not poor Norris, Norris is dead. We don't know how long he's been dead and been mm-hmm. the creature, but starts to expand and become this different thing. It's just Norris, the Norris imitation is bitten off Copper's hand, hands. Norris's head is 
ripping off. That's after he starts to get burned, right? Yeah, the they, the, the, yeah, but, but the head kind of uh, slowly detaches. It's, yeah, in a really grotesque scene. Yeah. Vessels that aren't blood vessels. I don't know what they are, but like they're this weird alien morphology that we're seeing the internal aspect of. And there's this weird goo and the head tries to escape. Yeah. Detect arms prop out of it. It almost gets away before Kurt Russell sees it. And he, of course, burns that too. And all the while we're getting that weird sound. The actors reacting to this is great as well. You know, they're, they're screaming and in, and uh, in terror. They they do seem like they're genuinely terrified, which is interesting because you know these guys don't strike me as the wimpiest of people. You know, oh, not at all. But it's in that fight with Norris that 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 McCready gets his idea for the test. Seeing the Norris head escape, he gets the idea that the creature isn't as integrated as we are, as human life is, as Earth life is. He thinks that every bit of it, every cell, has its own impetus, its own will to fight. So part of it was being destroyed. The other individual cells leave, right? They're going to try and survive. And he says, We're going to draw a little bit of everybody's blood. We're going to find out who's the thing. Watching Norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. My blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. So he's going to do a new blood test and he's just going to try and injure the blood with a hot wire and uh, another great effect shot that's really pretty subtle happens. I'll let you describe the scene. Well, uh, it, it, I mean, it's kind of the central scene of the movie it because uh, he has uh, um, most of them tied up uh, uh, on the benches and he takes out everybody's blood. He puts them in Petri dishes that have their names on them. And then th there's, this is just great filmmaking because very slowly we go from Petri dish to Petri dish and, and we have oh, kind wait, of the... Oh, wait a minute. Before we get here, the scene when he has everybody be tied up is crucial. It's like, all right, everybody, Winters tie everybody up. Childs is like, you're not tying me up. Yeah. McCready says, well, I'm going to have to kill you, Childs. And this is another moment of like two badasses in a room. And Childs is like, then kill me. Yeah. And, the, and Clark says, well, no, no, let's listen to McCready. Let's listen to Mac. And McCready walks up to Childs and puts the gun in his face and says, I mean it. And Childs, still a badass, is like, I guess you do. And <laughs> yeah. I think what convinces Childs that it's best to be tied up is when Clark tries to attack McCready. Without missing a beat, McCready spins on Clark as he's about to stab him with a scalpel, and he kills Clark dead in his track, shoots him right in the head. And uh, yeah. and so Clark's dead, and then in the next scene, everybody's pretty much tied up. <laughs> Yeah, 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 that's right, you know, yeah, yeah. And except for Winters, and that's the first bit of blood that McCready tests, is Winters' blood. He tests his own blood, is I'm going to show you what I know, yeah. and yeah. Childs is like, that don't mean shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, then he tests Clark blood, Clark's blood, McCready, you can tell, is shocked that nothing happens. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think we are as well. Yeah, because... Absolutely. And and Childs even tied up is like so. Clark was human. Well, that makes you a murderer. He's still, you know. Yeah. Um. But anyway, go ahead, take it away. I just think I think that that scene prior to that is crucial to show McCready's resolve. Yeah. Well, but I mean that's a resolve that they. I mean they were all going to leave him. At, I mean it's very similar to what if we're wrong. 
then we're wrong, you know, mm -hmm. and he's going to be out there and freeze to death. Absolutely. The, state, the stakes are just so high uh, because, you know, this is a situation where it's not just that one of them will be infected. This is not a creature that just takes over somebody and, and uh, you know, one person at a time. I mean, there could uh, be numerous of them that are. So, so this, you know, the stakes are just very high and that's why each of them have to have to, well, be so untrusting of each other. Yeah. So they go down the line, testing the blood, you know, of each person. And then, and then the moment, the moment comes, which was, uh, I think another, a very, very effective yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, was it, um, Palmer. Palmer. Kurt uh, Russell, this is a great effect because Kurt Russell is holding the Petri dish in his hand. And the blood jumps. Yeah. Jumps into the air. Yep. And Russell's, the, one of the, another reason why this scene is so effective after he burns the blood and it jumps up is Russell's reaction to it. He's like, oh, fuck. And he yeah. runs back. And the interesting thing, too, is they keep cutting back to Palmer. And Palmer has been played as this kind of stoner guy who's into conspiracy theories. And the imitation has been doing a pretty good job of being Palmer. Mm -hmm. So even for the audience, I think when I first saw it, I was shocked that he was a yeah. thing. Um, yeah. yeah. But he's looking down. He looks a little nervous about the test, right? Yeah. And then when his blood jumps up, it cuts back to him. And everybody on the couch is, cut me the fuck loose. You know? <laughs> they're all... They're all, they're all tied up with him and he's starting to have the change happen. He's changing into the thing to prepare to fight to save himself, right? Mm -hmm. Kurt Russell's flamethrower isn't working, which is pretty good actually for all the guys on the couch. Yeah. Because yeah. he was about he was about to burn that thing right there, right? But the thing stands up, the couch is up on its end, all the people are still attached to it. So this the thing is enormously strong. Winters has a flamethrower. He's trying to get it. His, his flamethrower works, but mm -hmm. he's just in awe and frightened of the creature, right? Right. The, the Palmer thing's head splits open and it grabs Winters by the head and just starts swinging him every which way in a mm -hmm. pretty horrific effect as well. More and more blood is coming out of Winters. It's pretty ugly. In kind of a recreation of the great scene from the 1951 movie, Kurt Russell blasts him with the fire, right? Right. And the thing is covered in flame. Does it run outside? I don't remember if it makes it outside or if he burns it down there in the room. I think he, he burns him down in the room. And no. then he burns Winters too because Winters, it lets go of Winters and then Winters is having the... Winters is being infected right before their very eyes. They're seeing right. a change and he's doing this weird, oh, so creepy movements covered in blood. That's all harrowing and horrifying and brilliantly done. And then they get, after that, they kind of get back to the blood test after they kill Palmer and Winters, right? And um, and Blair is next. Well, but I want to say something a little bit, I want to touch on one more thing before they go talk to Blair. Everybody's reaction to getting the test is kind of neat. They all breathe like a major sigh of relief after they're not it. Because some of them wonder, am I it? Am I the yeah. thing? And don't know it, right? Right, right. Even Childs, who's kind of a tough guy, is just like, He's happy to know that he's not infected, right? Yeah. Uh, the cook is the same way. The only person who doesn't have that uh, effect is the last one they test, which is a guy they thought was kind of one of the things, the, the Captain Gary. He's not one of them. And then Gary has a great corker of a line in this movie. He's like, I know you gentlemen have been through a lot. And when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch! Great, it's a great moment. And it's another, it's one of the only other laugh lines we get in the movie, really. So then they're going to go test Blair. They say to Childs, well, MacReady says to Childs, whatever tension they had going on is over. It's gone. I mean, those right. are two tough guys that were buttonheads. But then he's like, uh, hey, we're going to go check on uh, on Blair. Anybody who comes back is not us. Burn them, you know? Right. And uh, okay, Childs doesn't even question that. And they go and they find that uh, 
Blair's not where he's supposed to be. Yeah, the door is open. Yep. And they uh, they find a tunnel underneath the uh, the shed. Yep. That they go down and discover that uh, that Blair had been assembling a flying saucer. Yeah. So I mean, how long he had been infected? I guess we don't know. I I guess we're to assume that that he was visited at some point after he was locked up. That's that that's my surmise. But he's been a busy boy. That's also true to the novel, by the way. Blair oh, gets yeah. infected at some point, and he almost he almost escapes via the technology he assembles, right? Blair shuts down the generator, doesn't he, at that point? They... Uh, the power generator is uh, destroyed, which, oh, which, basically, right. which basically, in that moment, they're all dead. They're all dead. There, there's no way they're going to survive. And the way that the way that McCready especially accepts that, it, yeah. it's instantly. He's yeah. like, well, you know, the, the only thing left is because he realizes that the plan for the creature, because the creature had been on ice for thousands of years. Hundreds of thousands of years. Hundreds yeah. of thousands of years. So all it has to do is refreeze, let the humans all die, and then there will be a rescue team that will, that will inevitably come and unfreeze the creature, and it'll all start over again. And Creedy realizes very quickly yeah. that um, that they're all dead. The chances of survival are are exactly zero. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, that now the only thing to do is to prevent the creature from carrying out plans. So, by... so the McCready is going to try and lure it out, get it to come out, so that he can so that they can burn it down and kill it. Yeah. And yeah. I think the other thing he wants to do is drop the whole base into the ice. That's yeah. That's part of his plan, so that they can't be found when the next when the relief comes. Right. Right. Yeah. So no, it's a pretty it's a pretty powerful moment. Um, but I have to say too that while I think Gary and AJ look a little nervous about it, they get on board pretty quick. Mm. I, I think while a lot of the tension in the camp is about individual survival, McCready and Blair initially are the people who and Fuchs too. I. I I, I don't want to leave Fuchs out, are looking at the long game. They realize that if this thing gets to a populated area, that's it, probably. Yeah. I mean, unless unless humanity got, got really lucky. So that's his plan. We're going to blow it up. And then they go around and they start blowing up the base. As they're doing that, they do before they before they get into that, Childs leaves the base. And he's not around for the climax, for the, for the, for the final battle. He is around for the end, but he's not around for the final battle. Do we see him leave the base? You do see him leave the base. They wonder, because AJ comes back and is like, uh, Childs, just left and right, yeah. something they can't really worry about right so they're going to blow everything to shit and uh, they're going to bring the creature out and they're going to kill it they do violate horror rule move horror movie rule one, the chief horror movie rule, which is don't split up. Um, they, split up they split up to set up uh, explosives and to, to bring the base heat up. They're, they're trying to burn the creature down. They're trying to find the creature. As that's happening, the captain the captain gets killed horribly. Yeah. He gets a jump scare. He's doing, we get a jump scare out of it, but it's a reasonable jump scare. He's setting up his bomb and he turns around and there's Wilford Brimley, nicest looking guy on the planet. <laughs> But in this movie, so scary. And he grabs uh, Gary's face and then his fingers are inside Gary's face. It's, oh, it's horrifying. I remember when I saw this in high school, I, I had nightmares about this scene. And when he drags Gary away, like Gary's face is almost gone. It's almost like a, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a, like stretched flesh. It's, ooh, it's pretty grisly. We don't see what happened to AJ, but that's fine. I didn't need it. <laughs> yeah, now that you mention it, yeah. yeah. Um, he walks off and, you know, that's, that's all you need to know, really. And yeah. then uh, the final fight between Kurt Russell and, uh, 
the creature. Go ahead. You take it away, buddy. Because where are they? I mean, they're down in like a, a they're tunnel in the, or a they're cellar. They're in the boiler area. I think they're in the cellar yeah. in the boiler area. Yeah. And uh, Russell's getting ready to dynamite it. And, and, and he, uh, he's got he's got a detonator. Yeah. And he sees what's going on. And, you know, and he's kind of he's kind of standing on the detonator. Yeah. But then but then the creature kind of goes underneath, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And it starts to, it's a nice shot. It kind of blows through the boardwalk. And it's a, a pretty dynamic shot. And it grabs the detonator from him. Yeah. But but it didn't realize that Kurt Russell was wired up like a suicide bomber. He had dynamite all over him, actually. Probably the weakest effect shot in the movie begins with a stop motion animation when it grabs the detonator. That's not mm -hmm. a great scene. But then it cuts back to kind of the Rob Bottin special effects, his creature effects. Also, Stan Winston helped out with this. And it's the big creature and it's roaring at uh, Kurt Russell, who's lit another stick of dynamite. And he throws the dynamite at the creature and says, what does he say, Jason? Uh, I can't remember. I can't either. I think it's something like, fuck you too and he blows it up and that whole area is blowing up and it's uh everything's in flames and assume, uh, i think that, that the creature's destroyed in the fire that that ensued that 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 is the assumption and then uh and then childs returns well first we get kurt russell kind of walking and sitting down I with mean, his scotch yeah and that's and, when childs comes back and then childs comes back with a flamethrower yeah, yeah and doesn't he say that he went to go find blair he said i thought i saw blair i went after him he said, I okay, saw, I thought you know or, i can't remember what he says but he asked kurt russell what's going on maybe did you get it? I can't remember what his line is exactly, which is strange considering how much I've seen the film, but maybe not considering how much rum I've consumed. But then Russell says, where were you, child? So, you the only one who made it? Not the only one. Did you kill it? Where were you, child? Thought I saw Blair. Why is that the temperature up all over the camp? Won't last long though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should. If you're worried about me, then we've got any surprises for each other. I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. suspicious of each other. At yeah. that point, I think McCready has resigned himself to having done all he could do. If Childs is the thing, Childs has the flamethrower. There's nothing Kurt Russell can do. There's nothing Matt McCready can do at this point. He's either won and Childs yeah. is another human or he's lost and everything's over. Right, right. That is the famous ambiguous ending yeah. that, uh, and I guess here now we can get into the Now the we can get into a debate that has probably raged since 1982. Uh, yeah, even though, even though, uh, you know, before, before going there, I guess we can talk about the fact that this film did not do well. I have a theory about that. Oh, you probably wait. do too. The year was 1982, Jason. Yes. What destroyed everybody's box office dreams in 1982? 
Oh, uh, would it be Tron or perhaps E.T. the Extraterrestrial? It was E.T. E.T. Uh, the Extraterrestrial, a much more pleasant alien movie. Now, going against it, the thing was an R-rated movie, so that's it always going to hurt it. It did not get great reviews, though, either. That is shocking to me. Isn't uh, it? That is shocking. I mean, everything we... This movie is is considered one of the greatest science fiction horror films in in science fiction movie history. It didn't even get noticed by the Academy for the special effects, which it should have gotten a nod oh, because they still look really, 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 really good. There's a lot of films from this from the '80s and before where uh, you have to kind of forgive the effects sometimes a lot, yeah. which is which is quite doable. But uh, there's not much to forgive here. Everything looks really, really, really good. I agree. I agree. I honestly think that Kurt Russell probably deserved a, at least an Academy Award nomination for this, I think. I'll go there. I'll say that. I think he should have gotten okay. one for this. But you're right. It didn't do very well. But I think a lot of it had to do with E.T. Everybody was spending their money to go see E.T. a lot. Uh, I don't know if you if you know this. Um, John Carpenter, the failure of this film really wrecked him for a while. He has said, I mean, he, he's very grateful that the film is now uh, so embraced and accepted. But he said but at the time, when it flopped, he did not, he, he did not see that coming and it it made him think twice about what he should do yeah. as a director because he 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 did not expect the movie to fail like it did well he he lucked out, I think, with the VHS market because that's where the film got its legs under it. It didn't yeah. do well in the theater, in its theater theatrical release. In the VHS market, in the home video market, it started to build a following and then everybody started to see, well, this is a fucking great movie. Yeah. Uh, unless you're, unless horror movies, science fiction movies just aren't your cup of tea, and that's a, that's a, that's a legitimate personal taste. I think you come away with from this movie thinking, well, this is an amazing film. Returning to, I don't, so I, don't th I don't think the ambiguous in caused it to be oh no I mean and in fact I don't remember the first time I saw it thinking that it was even ambiguous perhaps it's my optimism I don't think that it's particularly ambiguous either there are a lot of morons on the internet that think Childs is wearing a different coat but go fuck yourself morons on the internet because I think you can't tell what color coat it is that he's wearing when he leaves the the base right yeah well but you know so, so I'll, I'll put my I'll, I'll lay my I'll lay my fucking cards out Jason yeah, yeah I think they're both human I want you to be right I I, uh, I I did read about some of the theories. There's one of them that I find to be really bizarre that that that's not a bottle of scotch, but it's actually a a he was making Molotov cocktails or something earlier in the movie, which I don't actually remember. But that he gave it to him to to kill him if he was the creep. I, I think that's dumb. But um, I actually I, I could not talk myself out of the the uh, the dark ending. And let me let me give you my reasons because Childs has the flamethrower, the moral thing for him to do if he's human uh, is to torch McCready, yeah. human or not, because he knows that he's alive. He knows that he's human. Yep. Uh, because see, the, the problem is if one of them is the creature, if one of them is the creature, then humanity has lost because because one of them, the one that's the creature, is going to freeze and be discovered by the rescue team and we're going to start all over. So it is totally Childs needs to use the flamethrower and torch McCready because then it's over. Yeah. Because, he, because he, he knows he's human and everyone's everything's burned even McCready's burned now I guess you could argue that he his character he said well then you know you just murdered is you know yeah. I guess that kind of implies that he he would not do that he would not knowingly kill a human yeah. but 
I I actually feel like there's just too many reasons why he needed to kill McCrady. And there's a very good reason not to kill McCrady. Because, I mean, you could also argue, well, if, 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 if Childs is the creature, then just kill McCrady because you can. You've got the flamethrower. Why not do it? But it, you could argue that, that the creature was staging the scene. Yeah. Because when they're found, you're going to have two frozen friends next to each other who yeah. are both dead. I tried to talk myself into your ending, and I couldn't do it. Well, I mean, it's a strong possibility. But if you're the creature, why go back? Why look for anybody? Why not just... So for me, I mean, this is a question that I would ask uh, of the of the people who can't talk themselves out of the dark ending. Why go back to anybody? Just lay down near the camp, safe. You know everybody else is... You know any survivors are going to die. Bury yourself in some snow. They don't have long because it's going to be 100 below, right? Yeah, so true. for me, the fact that Childs came back betrayed or could betray a need, uh, the human need to be around other humans. So I think that they're both humans, but I have to grant that there is enough ambiguity to raise a question. To, to raise a question. So yeah, Childs should have torched McCready, right? Yeah. But they've also gone through, if, if Childs is human and he thinks McCready's human, they've gone through a lot together. And true. so, yeah, I, I mean, I could see, I, I, I would prefer to read it the way that, that, that you are. I, I mean, just, it's possible. It's possible that I'm wrong. Well, I mean, I don't think that there is an answer. I mean, I did read that, that Carpenter wanted the ending to be ambiguous. He wanted that. Well, it's true. It's true. Um, interestingly, I've watched the director's cut. Uh, not the director's cut. Sorry, the, the director's commentary. Yeah. And um, he talks about the scene with the dog running towards American Research Base X. I don't remember what the... Uh, mm-hmm. As the beginning of the end of the world is how he kind of views it okay. sometimes. Um, kind of shows his hand, though, that, about the ending there, doesn't he? I mean, it's possible. But, I mean, he's, he, he felt that, you know, it could definitely be viewed that way. Um, Mm-hmm. But I still like the idea that Childs and and McCready are both human. I like I like the because I like the way they interact with each other at the end when uh, when Childs says, "Well, what do we do?" and McCready's already starting to freeze to death. You can already see that because mm-hmm. he's not moving very well, you know. And he says, uh, "Why don't we just sit here a while and see what happens?" And then he has a little laugh, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, he's done. Um, all, I mean, they've both done all they could do. I think. Yeah. No. I mean, I mean, there's there, there's just there's no doubt about that. And and I agree that you could explain. Child's choice not to torture him for the reasons that you're that you're stating. The fact that it's in his character because he called Mac out for for um, killing for killing Clark yeah. when he was not infected. Yeah. Well, that makes you a murderer. So I mean, you know, maybe you know he he has a personal kind of moral code about it. When he was shutting Mac out, he had evidence to think that Mac was a thing. Right. You know. But anyway, so Childs maybe wouldn't do that, and he doesn't have evidence that Macready is the thing, a thing. So I like to think, and like I said, maybe it's the opposite optimism in me. I like to think that they're both human as they fucking freeze to death. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, see, I, I would like to think that too, but I, I was having a hard time talking myself out of it. Because also throw in the fact that well, I saw, I thought I saw Blair. Well, okay, well, how did that finish out? You thought you saw him. Did you find him? Yeah. And that might have been a time where he would have gotten infected. So... Oh, absolutely, yeah. So here's the other question. Who was infected first? Have you read anything about that? I have not actually read a lot about it. As I was doing the prep for this, before mm-hmm. I watched the movie, I saw that there were a bunch of theories and I intentionally avoided them because I kind of wanted to have my own ideas about that. Who was infected first? I, I have an idea, who, but who do you think it was? Well, okay, I, I think we're to assume that the first person who was infected is the is the one that the dog visits, right? Okay. In the but, it, but they don't show who it is. It's just a they, silhouette. Well, I, see, we never know who was infected when. Is I mean, I mean, I guess that, um, is it Bennings? That, Bennings is not the first. 
I don't. No, no, no. I that, that's not what I was. I was saying that Bennings we actually I think see, don't we? That's the first person we see be infected. Yeah, so it's not him, and he doesn't get a long term. Right. I think it's Norris, the guy, okay. the guy whose chest opens up. Did you now? Have you watched? Because you've watched the film more free, more often than I have, and many times. Have you ever watched through it and tried to watch that actor and how he responds to everything? This was the viewing in which I did that. When they're at the flying saucer, I said Norris is the first guy infected because while Mac is looking around at the saucer, Norris is looking around and he's smiling. Okay. He's smiling about it. He grabs his coat to go see what's going going on at the base right away. He's not been eager to do any of that. And I think he would have attacked Mac if they'd gone just together. But somebody else went with them. And one of the things that Blair pointed out was that the thing needs to be alone with somebody for a little while. Yeah, because it's... it's uh, right, right, right. Um, so what I think Norris wanted to do was attack Mac and not tell anybody. He would assimilate Mac. Mac would become a thing. Then they could say they didn't find anything, right? I think right. he was trying to control that. But when he's looking at the uh, ship, he's got a big, he's kind of got a grin on his face and he seems to be really happy to see the ship. I think Norris is the first one. When he comes, when the silhouette also looks a little bit like Norris, when the dog goes into the room with Norris. Um, I don't know when Palmer got infected, but I was worried that he, uh, I know at some point Palmer gets infected, the the the, the stoner guy. Um, yeah. I was worried he had infected AJ in later viewings. I was, is he going to infect AJ because they're splitting the marijuana cigarettes in? Which I mean, okay. Now is that a fan theory? Because as you said, AJ just disappears. But we know AJ is not one of the things because he he survives. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because he survives the blood yeah. test. Palmer. I don't know when he gets infected, but Norris has a lot of time to move around before he's found as a creature, right? And he moves pretty freely through the camp so i think honestly it goes norris palmer and blair and i don't know when blair gets it does he get it before palmer i don't know well i think he would almost have to I mean, he, he assembled that ship he had to yeah. I mean, you know so, that was time I, I think blair is maybe the second longest of the infected but yeah that's that's what i think um but i just looking at it a lot watching watching norris's reactions so what so what's the heart attack then i don't know they don't really explain that is it is it it's something to do with having to hold a, a different form for so long. They don't really explain what's going on. Something is wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with Norris to begin with that, that the creature seems to be struggling with too. You know, maybe yeah. maybe what he's imitating is Norris isn't doesn't look like a fit guy. You know, right? Yeah. Maybe he's uh, maybe the creature is imitating Norris pretty well, and it's imitating Norris's heart condition. I guess I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a open question in in our thinking about the film. Yeah, I I can see that. So you didn't get any any idea for what fan theories are well i saw one that i just thought was stupid which was that mccready was the was a thing and that i didn't even bother looking at that because i i just thought that's somebody trying to be clever you know that's what i that's where i came out with that one well yeah because i i um i think that's very difficult i mean that would have to be quite a chess game that he was playing yeah, yeah, yeah. where where he was willing to destroy all these infected creatures just to get down to the point where it was just him to freeze yeah i think that's 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 too much that, that's well, not, that's not the, right. the, the reason why I think people think that is because he takes a drink of Blair's scotch or mm-hmm. vodka and they think that's when they're like well he took a drink of that and that's how Blair got infected but I think that's just not necessary because yeah if Norris is free and running around he can get into that thing he can get into the into Blair's cabin pretty easily right yeah right right and it just didn't make much sense to me um Norris I, and obviously Blair gets out a lot because he gets a lot of gear yeah. to make his flying saucer right so once you've become a 
a thing, once, once the thing has happened to an organism, I guess, they're not as easy to imprison, especially by what the people at the Arctic Research Station have to, to work with. So I didn't really like any of those fan theories. Uh, yeah, I think Norris is the first guy and then everything kind of proceeds from there, with, you know, from there. I think that makes sense. But I don't think that a lot of people were infected in the movie. But, but the terror is that who is infected? Mm. One of the strange things, one of the things that I did read about um, that people thought that this was a metaphor for the AIDS epidemic that was going on uh, in the 80s. It was just starting to kick off because it's it all just starting. Yeah, it's all men, all these guys. Which of course, John Carpenter was like in the in the director commentary. He's like, well, that was interesting. I was that wasn't what I was trying to do, but that was an interesting <laughs> idea that that he was making a metaphor for the the AIDS crisis at the time. But but well, you know, I, I actually um, the the original thing yeah. I I read uh, the other night that um, many 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 film critics saw it as a metaphor for the McCarthy year. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I I actually don't see that at all. <laughs> I mean, I didn't see it. I don't think Hawks was going for that. I mean, Hawks was going no. for his men of action or people yeah. of action kind of thing. And certainly Christian uh, Campbell wasn't thinking of that at all. He, he wrote a story in 1938. Yeah. And, and, I mean, unless he had read a lot of Orwell. <laughs> right, was, right. <laughs> We see what we want to see when we watch a movie or read a book or a play or whatever. We we bring we bring our own thoughts to it, and so I think everybody sees a different movie. I mean, there's as, there's as many movies as there are people to watch them and and, and experience. Them. Well, that's certainly true, and I, I think some of the best movies actually uh, and the best books allow themselves to be interpreted in myriad ways. For me, the thing in '82 or '51, our story is about people confronting yeah. a, a terrible unknown you know something I, I i think you were talking about the classification of this movie i tried to find that on youtube there was a really interesting analysis of the thing and about the materialism of the thing mm-hmm. um the last horror film we observed was the omen which is a very supernatural horror film um very steeped in christian traditions very steeped in a specific religious idea the thing and this is true of just about every iteration of the thing is not a supernatural horror film right it's a it's a naturalistic horror film in this in this instance it's dealing with not a not a pathogen or something like that uh, that we 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 generally deal with in the real world but but it's dealing with a hostile organism this is not a supernatural horror film and i the most religion we get in the film is McCready's the offhand remark the offhand remark where he's just trying to be comforting and he clearly doesn't know how to, right. to, to do that very well but it is a materialistic kind of naturalistic vision of the world I think anyway I just, I just wanted to put that out because I thought that was an interesting idea well uh, well, I agree with that but I think that um, um, what you're describing as a genre though one would have to say that in the film world of course the story's older yep. but, but in the film world uh, Alien would have would have predated it and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and would have done that first. Uh, I, I mean, actually, that's the best comparison, actually, I think, is uh, Alien and this film in particular are, are uh, kind of form uh, their own kind of genre, um, sci-fi horror. So, so my next question to you is, when you watch a horror film, what terrifies you or lingers with you longer? Something like a supernatural horror film, like Exorcist. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of really good supernatural horror films. Any Christopher Lee Dracula movie probably immediately gets kicked out of the discussion. <laughs> but, but, but there are good supernatural horror films. But then there's this other genre, I think, of the, of the more materialistic versions. And I just, I'm just curious, as a viewer, you and I see these things, I wonder what you think. What, 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 what affects Jason more? I mean, of course, we can get into some of that uh, in the uh, in the uh, uh, in the final verdict because this is an incredibly effective movie. 
uh, and and affecting movie. One of the things that, that that occurred to me while I was watching it again was just how frightened I was. Mm-hmm. And at this point in my life, that doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, certainly a movie can be thrilling, but but I think I had my hand up to my face and my and my teeth were grinding mm-hmm. during a lot of these a lot of these uh, uh, events in the movie that I had seen before. Yeah, yeah. But but really had as I said had I'd forgotten enough that it was like watching it for the first time. And so I was I was on the edge of my seat. I was jumping out of my seat. It's that's not an experience that I have very often. When a when a when a horror movie is able to do that, yeah. then it's really effective. And in and this movie, and the question that you're asking is about the ideas of the film. I think that a really great horror movie can be done either with supernatural elements or with um, non-supernatural elements, science fiction elements, the just kind of man's interaction with the universe kind of thing, which is what this is. And uh, I think it can be done effectively either way. What is required for good horror is it's got to be able to pull the rug out from under you so that no matter what your perspective is, it can it can make you uncomfortable to the degree that the omen was effective, if it was effective at all, it would have to be able to, to, to you know, a viewer that didn't have have those beliefs um, might be unnerved at the possibility that uh, because okay here we're imagining this universe where those ideas are real yep. and you know wouldn't that be a horrifying thing and for these two hours does that work that kind of thing so that's what a good horror movie needs to be able to do I don't think and and you and I have discussed this many times in the past because I I uh, we both talked about how we both love a really 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 well made horror movie yep. and we both lamented about how they're so few and far between. This is one of those that is spectacularly successful. Uh, yeah, um, I, for me, I think the supernatural horror films generally have to work a little harder. I can almost always enjoy a good one, mm-hmm. but but because I don't generally find any of those elements compelling intellectually, uh, just to say I don't believe in ghosts, I don't, I don't believe in supernatural things, I have to grant, I have to perform for a supernatural horror film what I have to do for a Marvel movie. Okay, mm-hmm. people can do that in this universe, right? I have to go in consciously checking my my uh, suspension you know I have to turn on my suspension of disbelief sure for, for film for films like alien aliens this film uh, the thing I don't have to do that as much and so I feel like it's a lot easier for me to like slip into the sentiments of the movie you know for me well it it, it, uh, it, it does a very good job of creating uh, of presenting you characters that you care about that have uh, a certain interplay with each other and 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 they're in a certain place and they've kind of learned to interact with their universe in a certain way and they are suddenly confronted by by this creature and actually one of the things that I think makes the film effective as you pointed out paranoia is the primary emotion that is felt in this film because I, what I really like and what I think is unique about the movie is that, and not just Matt, but several characters, they're able to accept their dire situation pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. And, and so there's a realism that comes with that because I think in that kind of situation, adrenaline and so forth, uh, you would probably make those assessments pretty quickly because because the stakes are so high every second. Like, there's not really a time where you get a break because anybody could be infected and you have to be on your guard all the time. You can't you can't really afford any, any missteps, which they do make several. It's just what the film is able to do in intensity is just is really unique it portrays everything in a realistic way yeah um because it gives us good characters it gives us a good story as you're saying it gives us uh, very good ideas that 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 are you 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 find very easy to approach i find very easy to approach as well and 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 i can see what you're saying about supernatural films having to work a little bit harder but i think some of them do oh i i think they do too i'm not 
I'm not discounting that genre, but I, I'm just I'm just wondering if you find one more effective at at drawing you in and setting mood more easily than 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 the other genre. I think any of these genres can work if they're done smartly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's fair. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what you're saying is, um, well, I, you are saying that this genre doesn't have to work as hard. Um, for me, no, no, I don't think so. But well, but it it can be bad though too. It can be. It can there, be. There's there's I, I just, some I was of them. About aliens versus predator. That that just came to my mind too. <laughs> it's not a foolproof plan of action for horror movies. And now, the verdict. This is the this is the most intense film I've ever seen. Oh wow! Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I just look. I, I I've watched a lot of movies. I've watched this movie before, and yeah. and I and I had the same experience when I watched it the first time. But watching it again all these years later, this movie from 1982, this older movie, and to still draw me in with these uh, uh, characters, with these special effects, with the the, the tension sustained throughout th that is enhanced by the music, enhanced by the the very skill direction and to just have me holding my breath and having my hand up in my face and almost wanting to avert my eyes which I don't do anymore I, I'm just really kind of in awe of that and um, and, and the reason I think that I can that I can really stick with this verdict is that uh, the, the, the dramatic nature of my verdict anyway is that there aren't really a lot of horror movies that can do this to me and uh, this is one of the few and it, it, it really knocked it out of the park I would recommend this anybody that likes horror movies anybody yeah. should watch this movie if you want an intelligent movie you should watch a horror movie you should watch this movie if you just want cheap scares they're not really cheap scares but this movie will give you everything that you are used to seeing when you go see see the the crappy horror movies that are out there i i i cannot recommend this movie enough anybody anybody that has any interest in the horror genre this this should be in their top five i mean i've seen this film i don't know when i first watched it but ever since i watched it. Look, I've owned it on VHS. I've owned it on DVD. I own it now on Blu-ray. I even have a digital copy. I watch this movie twice a year. I keep coming back to it because of the power of, of the story, I think. And uh, the the kind of character of its characters. Um, I mean, just these people are these idiosyncratic scientists doing their job. And now they've got this new job that they all seem to kind of accept. Right. I, and I think that, I, I guess for me, what I really love about this version of the film, the 51 version of the film, and the 38 book, is that it is, I think it represents the best of humanity. And, right. and I, I do like that about this film. And I, I guess that's why I keep coming back to it. It's everything that you said it is, but I think it's a great... I think it's a great picture of humanity. Well, I, I would see, I, and I would agree with that too. Like, like I, I think this film can be enjoyed on a lot of different levels. Even though it's, it's really a very simple narrative. Yep. You know, I mean, the cast is very compact, except for the Norwegians who we never meet. Uh, it's really just these people. It, it, it's really just Marvel. All right, that's uh, the verdict. Anything else? I don't mean to cut you off, my friend. Oh, no, no. Uh, the movie is a visual Marvel. I, I, uh, I, I can't say enough good things about it. So. It's a wonderful thing. <laughs> and that's it, guys. Jason, what are we doing next week? I think I, did I pick the thing or did you pick the thing? 
I think you picked the thing. All right, um, you got a movie for us right now, everybody? Send your vibes to Jason right now. <laughs> but you'll be doing it in the future, coming to the past. So we'll see what happens here. Because horror movie, right? Let's do a horror uh, movie. Whatever you want to do, I don't care. But well, I just mentioned Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Which version? Seventy-eight. Now, yeah. audience, Jason has tried to get me to watch the seventy-eight version for many years again, and I've been a little leery of it because when I saw it as a kid, I thought everybody was invaded by the body snatchers after I saw this as a kid, and it's left a really bad taste in my mouth. So it was effective. It was very effective to my 12-year-old self or whatever year old I was. But yeah, if you want to do the Body Snatcher 78, I'm down. All right, guys. So next week, we will be covering 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Remember to like us on all the things. Share us on social media. Share us with your friends. Give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks again. All the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is by me, Max, and uh, is used with my permission. So... Bye-bye. And when I would get my breakfast, I would look at the back of my mom and dad's neck to make sure <laughs> that they were not, uh, they were not body snatched. We bring our own thoughts to it. And so I think everybody sees a different movie. I mean, there's this...